For everyone shall be salted with fire, Jesus says. Do you know what that means? I mean, honestly, just stop and think about it for a minute. Is that something that you hear and you say, oh, I understand what he's talking about. Everyone shall be salted with fire. And every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Is that something that you hear and you say, oh, I, I get that quite easily and simply? He then says, salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. I feel a little bit like, as I enter this message, uh, as I was reflecting this week, a little bit like an experience I had when I was interviewing for a law firm job uh, over a decade ago. It was through our law school and all these law firms came to campus and rented out hotel rooms and students would just go in mass and one at a time they would go in and get interviewed and the law firms would get to decide who they wanted to make offers to. And I was waiting my turn to be interviewed outside of this Holiday Inn uh, uh, in or around Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the door opens of the student who had been uh, interviewing before me and he came out white like a sheet. I mean, he was almost trembling. And he comes out, and I'll never forget, he, he, he said something like, good luck. He's just going to ask you, basically, why do you want to work at my law firm or something? And this guy was literally, I mean, he was just absolutely shaken. And so I just made a snap decision. Well, I'm just going to go in, and I'm just going to try to lead the conversation. And we ended up having a great conversation. And it wasn't a problem at all. Um, but I'll never forget that guy coming out just, Good luck. Good luck. And I say that because when we come to these two verses, the commentators who I tend to look at and, 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 and try to gain insight from and confirm that I'm looking at it the right way, I kind of picture them coming out of that hotel room saying, good luck. Good luck. I want to tell you what one of the commentators that, uh, that I often consult, here's what he said. These verses, three verses, he says, are amongst the most difficult in the New Testament. That's what, that's what he says. Here's what another one says. This is J.C. Ryle, the one who wrote the book Holiness by J.C. Ryle, a wonderful expositor, one that I often consult. He said, this verse, speaking of this verse, it appears to baffle all the commentators. He said, the true meaning of these words and their connection with the context are problems which seem not yet solved. At all events, not one of the many interpretations which have been hitherto proposed is entirely satisfactory. We must confess that it is one of those knots which are yet untied in the exposition of Scripture. Good luck. Here's another one that Albert Barnes, another man that I often consult, he says, perhaps no passage in the New Testament has given more perplexity to commentators than this, and it may be impossible now to fix its precise meaning. Good luck. So I am going to storm into that hotel room door, and we're going to try to understand what this passage means. And actually... I'm not so sure that it is as complicated as everyone is making it out. Perhaps you're going to look at it by the end of the sermon and say, no, you were wrong. I still can't make hide nor hair of it. Well, whatever that is, what I want to do today is I want to look at these two verses. I've saved these two verses exactly because 
they're going to need our careful thought and study. But also, I want to use these verses as a way to help teach all of us, how do we approach hard passages in the Bible? How do we approach passages that we read and we just sit there and we look at them and we scratch our head and say, huh, what does this mean? How are we going to draw conclusions in our own personal study of the Bible from these two verses that might help us tackle other challenging verses? I want us to look today at three principles by which I think we can look at hard passages or ones that seem difficult to understand and use them as roadmaps to think through not just these two verses, but other verses. Here's the first one. What is the clear language of the passage? What is it just saying on its face? Are we ignoring any just obvious clues in the language itself that we should not be? Clear language. The second is this. Consistency with other scripture. Consistency with other scripture. When you come across a difficult passage and you're trying to interpret it, use the rest of scripture to interpret scripture. What do you know about God in the rest of the Bible? What other examples from scripture could shed light on this one? And the third principle is context. What is going around, going on in the verses around it? Clear language, consistency with other passages in Scripture, in context. Those three principles can really help us work through some knots that otherwise we might find difficult to untie. So let's apply those three principles together to these two verses, and we will dive right in. The title of the message this morning is simply going to be this, Fire and Salt. Fire and salt. Because Jesus is using these two pictures. The picture of fire, everyone will be salted with fire, he says. And salt, every sacrifice will be salted with salt. And salt is good. He then goes on to say in verse 50, you see, have salt in yourselves. Now as we launch into this this morning, I'm going to ask you if you have your Bible to have it open and to be looking at this text. If you, have your, if you have a Bible on your phone or in some other way, I encourage you to open it up. We're going to need to look at the clear language of this text to try to understand what Jesus is saying to us today. How we're going to divide this message is we're going to look at the two pictures that Jesus gives. The picture of fire, the picture of salt, and then finally, we'll look at a practical application that Jesus is going to give for all of us. So there's two pictures, and then there's a practical application. Let's look, first of all, at the picture of fire. Do you see here in verse 49 with me? He says, for everyone shall be salted with fire. Everyone shall be salted with fire. Well, let's stop for just a moment and look at this clear language together. He says, everyone shall be salted with fire. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, let's take a very practical example. What does it mean to salt something? If you were to be having a meal, say if you were having some raw vegetables or some cooked vegetables, and you wanted to give a little more life to those vegetables, 
if you were my wife, you'd put ranch dressing on them. But if you're like the, some of the rest of us, you take a little bit of salt and you would salt it. That makes sense? You take salt and you apply it to the food that you're eating. If you have an, a hard-boiled egg, a lot of times you say, this needs a little salt. And so you salt it. Now, I think that's just the very simple context, the very simple idea that Jesus is referring to here. Salting something is just applying something to, in this case, he says, everyone. Everyone will be salted, but what is in the salt shaker, if you will, is not salt. It is what? What's coming out of the salt shaker? Fire. It will be salted with fire. And so the very, the very just obvious thing that Jesus is saying here is everyone will be salted, will have fire applied to their life. We could just simply say fire will touch everyone. Okay, simple enough so far. Everyone will be salted with fire. And why do I keep emphasizing everyone? Because Jesus said everyone. Now, the commentators here just are so divided on this point. One group of commentators say, well, it's connected to what Jesus is talking about with fire before. Notice again, look at the previous verse, verse 48, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. What kind of fire is Jesus talking about there? The fire of hell. And so they say, well, for, that's a, a word of explanation, for everyone shall be salted with fire. And they say, well, he's talking about hellfire. He's talking about the people who are going there. And, and it's, it's talking about people, the fire of hell being applied to people. This is talking about unbelievers. Well, then there's a whole other group of commentators that say, no, 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 no. He's not talking about the fire of hell being salting people. He's talking about the fiery trials we go through as Christians. Now he's talking about Christian people and disciples. He's talking about the difficult circumstances of life that are being applied by fire to your Christian experience. And I just step back and say, wait a second. Did Jesus say every believer of mine? No. Did he say every unbeliever will be salted with fire? No. What did he say? Everyone. Everyone. Remember what I said, look to the clear language of the Bible. We do this in the law. Judges in all the states, if the language of a contract that you enter with another person is clear and unambiguous, it's just there on the face, do you know they, the judges won't allow you to put in any other evidence of what that contract means? They'll say, no, I, I don't want to hear it. I don't need to hear it. The words of the contract say what they say. And I'll just tell you, generally speaking, in the Bible, when you're reading the Bible, if Jesus says something clear, if he says something obvious, then unless you find other evidence in the text, well, he, he clearly intends me to take this as different, then just take what he says clearly. He said everyone. Everyone will be salted with fire. And so that means I take that as everyone. And let's just take that today. Everyone will be salted with fire, will have fire applied to his life or to her life. Now, we can take that practically here. That means you will be salted with fire. And that means I will be salted with fire. And so then we step back, and if, if we say everyone will be salted with fire, in what way? 
I mean, is, is a Christian going to have his life salted with fire, have fire applied to his life in the same way that an unbeliever is going to have fire applied to his life? And now we bring in the rest of Scripture. Now we talk about consistency with other passages. I want to just take you to two passages in which I think we're going to see fire being applied in two different ways. Let's go first of all to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew is just one book back in your Bible from Mark. So if you're at Mark, flip back until you get to the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, and look with me at Matthew chapter 3. Now you can hold your place if you haven't already lost it in Mark 9 because we will come back. Right here in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is testifying about Jesus. And notice what he says, John the Baptist, we studied him in our study of Mark, and he is the baptizer. He was called John the Baptist because his ministry was to baptize people with the baptism of repentance. And so notice what he says in verse 11. He says, I indeed, John, I baptize you with water under repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I. He's more important. He's more prominent. He's more powerful than I. Whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. I'm not even worthy to be his footman. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with what? With fire. Jesus will baptize you with fire. Now, notice what comes immediately after in verse 12. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. He'll preserve it, he'll save it, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, here's the picture of fire in two ways. Jesus is someone who comes to baptize you with the Holy, with, 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 um, the, the Holy Spirit, and with fire. Do you remember when the Holy Ghost came at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost? What was the picture that the Holy Ghost appeared as above the heads of those disciples? It was what? Fire. The Holy Ghost is a fire that purifies, that cleanses, that makes you clean. He's going to baptize you with fire. Or what does verse 12 say? If you're not his wheat, if you're the chaff, if you're the leftovers, if you're the worthless residue, what's going to happen to that? It's going to be what? It's going to be burned with unquenchable fire. Do you see two kinds of fires? There's a fire that purifies. And there's a fire that destroys. Jesus came for a fire. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 12. In verse 49, Jesus says, I am come to send fire on the earth. Do you know that's why Jesus came? To start a fire. He did start the fire. He did come to start the fire, and it is burning. And Jesus says, everyone, everyone will feel my fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now go back to Malachi chapter 3. You say, well, where is that? This is the last book in the Old Testament. So go one book back from Matthew, and you'll be at Malachi. One book back from Malachi, and look with me at Malachi chapter 3. This is an Old Testament prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus, but about Jesus, about the Messiah who would be coming. Look in verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, 
God says, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Who's me? Jesus, the Son of God. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But look at verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's... What's the next word? Fire. He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Using what? Fire. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and they shall offer, excuse me, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. What's Jesus coming to do? He's coming to purify. He's coming as fire. Now go ahead to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. Again, we're just using this for a check against Scripture here. Notice in verse 1 of Malachi 4, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Two kinds of fire. Two kinds of fire. There is a fire, in other words, that delivers from impurity. And there's one that destroys for impurity. There is one that purifies and there is another that punishes. One kind of fire represents the holy love of God in delivering his people from their sin and from their uncleanness. And there is another kind of fire that represents the holy wrath of God, the holy judgment of God in burning up what is impure if you will, in almost the garbage dump, if you could picture it, of God's world. You see, when Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire, we should just take it for, for what it says. Everyone will be. And here's the very, very sobering reality, is that you will choose which fire you will face. You will. Jesus says you will be salted with fire, my friend. You will have the fire applied to your life. And it will be either the fire of my love that purifies you and makes you fit for eternity with me in heaven. Or it will be the fire of my judgment and wrath that will be eternal destruction and death in hell. You pick. You see... When Jesus says there is the fire that will be coming, we think of other scriptural passages, don't we? First Peter 1 says, says that our faith, there is the trial of, of our faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. First Corinthians chapter 3 speaks of, an, of, of a final day when all of our work, when all of our ministry will be subject to the fire at the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. And he says there will be some people whose entire life work will go up in smoke when that flame touches it. He says they will be saved, but by fire. The fire's going to touch every one of us. Will we choose the fire of God's cleansing by receiving the work of Jesus 
that he has accomplished for the forgiveness of our sins? Will we accept the Holy Spirit as the purifying, cleansing source in our lives, burning away what is wrong and what is displeasing to God among us? Will we choose that fire? It will hurt. It will be hot. It will be painful. Scripture says we must through much tribulation, we must through much hardship enter into the kingdom of God. It's a straight gate and it's a narrow way that leads to life. He says, do you want that fire? Or do you want the fire that will burn eternally as God's judgment? Friends, everyone will be salted with fire. Which fire are you choosing? So first of all, we see here a picture of fire as a purifier. Everyone will be salted with fire. Notice secondly here, the second picture. And every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Okay, well, you kind of understand, at least he's talking about being salted with salt. Now salt is getting poured on what? What is the salt being poured on? A sacrifice. Now, if we think biblically, if we think scripturally now, we should start thinking about what salt is and what salt does. In fact, if you were to go back to Leviticus chapter 2, we won't go there, but you can just write it down, perhaps as a cross-reference in your Bible, Jesus is referring back to this Old Testament idea. Listen to what God says in Leviticus chapter 2. And every oblation of your meat offering, that's literally your grain offering, your crops that, that the Old Testament Jews were bringing to God. He says, every one of those shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering, your grain offering, your crops offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. So Jesus is quoting this. He's, he's taking us back. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Ezekiel chapter 43 says the same thing. God says to his people, And thou shalt offer them these sacrifices before the Lord, and the priest shall cast salt upon them, and they shall offer them up for a burnt offering unto the Lord. So here's the Old Testament picture that Jesus is bringing. He's just told us that fire will act as a purifier or a punisher, as something that preserves or something that destroys. And now he says, and every sacrifice will be salted with salt. Okay, now let's step back for a minute and start thinking about what Jesus could mean here. What would someone in Jesus' time have understood salt to be all about. I bet you don't think about your salt very often other than when you're giving yourself hypertension by throwing all, putting it all over your food and high blood pressure because salt is plentifully available to us. You can go to the grocery store and come home with large quantities of salt. Perhaps you have large quantities of salt stored up in your pantry. You never think about salt unless you need to go and restock. But not in Jesus' day. Let me just give you a couple of pictures, a couple of ideas of what salt meant in Jesus' day. The first thing that it meant was that salt is precious. Salt is precious. They would have understood that in Jesus' day. Salt was very precious component. In fact, I, in my study, I came across something that was just wonderful. Do you know the word salary that we have today? Like the salary that you receive from your work? Do you know that comes from a Latin word that literally means salt. It has the idea of salt being in it. Have you ever heard about a bad employee and it said of him, he's not worth his 
he's not worth his salt. Now, that doesn't make any sense today when salt is readily available at the corner grocery store, but what does it mean? What does it make sense when salt is precious and when salt is a valuable commodity? Yeah, that guy's not worth his salt. There was some thought that the Roman soldiers received an allotment of salt as a, perhaps even part of their payment, as a part of their, and that has come perhaps now to have that root word of salary. That is the idea even of salt. Salt was precious. Friends, cities were built for their access to salt in the ancient days. Roads were well-traveled because salt was passed along them. Have you ever heard of the ancient salt roads? The salt routes that were trade routes bringing salt from one place to another. Still in, in Italy today, there is the Via Salaria, the salt road from which they would go from Rome to the Adriatic Sea to take salt and to bring it back to Rome. Salt was an absolutely fundamental component of the ancient life. Salt was precious. Here's the second thing about salt. Salt purifies. Salt purifies. Salt was an antiseptic in that day. In fact, I, 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 I took the time to go back and look through every reference to salt in the Old Testament. And, and there's one of them that is very interesting. Ezekiel chapter 16 refers to the fact that babies were rubbed with salt after they were born. You can imagine as a kind of antiseptic, if there were any cuts or scrapes or other things, babies were traditionally rubbed with salt. So salt is precious, salt is a purifier. But now we're getting to two probably of the most important ones. Salt preserves. Salt preserves. I was listening to a, a, a preacher, and, and he was talking about his own experience with this. He uh, grew up on farms, and, and his family would harvest hogs. And he described the hogs being butchered, and around November, they would take the hogs out to their smokehouse. And in that smokehouse, they would take the ham, right? They would take the hams from the hogs, and they would put under it two inches of salt. And then they would take salt and meticulously, meticulously massage it and rub it into the ham over and over and over and over again. And then they would put six inches of salt on top of that ham. And then do you know what they'd do? They'd leave it. They'd leave it for months and they'd come back in the spring. You say, well, surely that, that, that ham left out for that entire time has gotten rotten. It's gotten, it's gotten, you can't eat it. No, do you know what it had become? Cured. Where do you think you get cured ham from? Ham and salt. Why? Because salt preserves. Salt preserved that ham, that meat, from rotting. And back in Jesus' day, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have an ability to preserve food or to take it long distances. It was a hot, arid climate. So what did they do? They packed it in salt. And the salt, in contact with the meat, preserved it. And so salt was a preservative. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Ye are the salt of the earth. Why? Because amidst all the rotting, all the decay, all the breakdown in human relationships, you are the preservative. You are what's holding it and keeping it in a preserved form. You, if you will, are curing it. But there's one other thing. Salt is permanent. Salt 
is permanent. Now, because salt was such a preservative, because the ancients knew that salt would maintain things, it was precious, it always lasted. Even today, we know that sodium chloride is one of the most stable bonds in our chemical world. It is, as I understand it, nearly impossible to draw the salt out of salt. Sodium chloride is such a strong bond. It is so preservative that it became a symbol of permanence. Do you remember what we read, what I read for you in Leviticus 2? It says, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from your offerings. The salt of the covenant. That's not the only place that's mentioned in the Bible. In Numbers chapter 18, it speaks of a covenant of salt that God has made with the priests. In 2 Chronicles 13, it's referenced a covenant of salt between God and David and his kingdom. A covenant of salt. You say, what in the world? If you wanted to enter a binding, permanent contract with someone, do you know what you did? You went and you ate salt together. Salt was a representative of something permanent, of something enduring, of something preserving, and something utterly and completely final. And God says, in your sacrifices to me in the Old Testament, I want that picture. I want that purifier. I want that preservative. I want that precious thing. And I want that symbol of my permanent covenant love between you and between me. It's a wonderful picture. And now Jesus is taking us back to these Old Testament pictures. And he says, every sacrifice will be salted with salt. So what's the picture here? Well, who's the sacrifice? What sacrifices have, has Jesus been talking to his disciples about that we've been studying? Do, do we remember just a little bit ago when he was teaching them about discipleship? He, what did he say to them? If he, said, he said, if you're going to try to, to preserve your life, you're going to what? Lose it. But if you're going to lose your life, if you're going to sacrifice your life for my sake, find it. Just last week we looked at a sacrifice what sacrifice was Jesus talking about in these verses that just came before? He said, if your hand offends you, do what with it? Sacrifice it. Cut it off to be my disciple. If your foot offends you, it, cut it off. Now, we said last week he's not talking literally. He's not saying go and amputate. He's saying don't let anything stand in the way of you pursuing holiness before me. You've got to deal with your sin or your sin is going to deal with you. And now he says what? Every sacrifice... I think of Romans chapter 12, Paul's exhortation to us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And God says, do you want to come with yourself as a, as a sacrifice before me? Then it's going to be salted with salt. It's going to have that picture of your permanent connection to me, of that preserving and purifying force like salt in that meat. You must be salted with salt to be a pleasing offering to me. Two wonderful pictures. Everyone's going to be salted with fire. Which fire are you going to choose? The fire of God's love or the fire of God's wrath? Every sacrifice before me to be acceptable to me, to be, to be acceptable and pleasing to me, must be salted with salt. It needs to have that symbol of my own steadfast love and faithfulness, that preserving force that my life entering into you, my nature entering into you, 
will provide. And third, let's look here at a practical application. Look at verse 49. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. And then he says, salt is good. Now, the next time you eat McDonald's fries with Coca-Cola, just remember the Bible says salt is good. Okay, just, that's all you need to take. Sometimes those life verses, one of my favorite verses is when it says in the book of Acts, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And I just feel like every time I sit down to a steak, I need to remember, I quote that verse, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But no, seriously, salt is good. What's Jesus saying? Salt is good. We've just seen all the reasons in the Old Testament that it is good. It is, it is precious. It is a purifier. It is a preserver. And it is permanent. But notice what he says next. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will he season it? You say, what on earth is he talking about? Well, you need to understand, he's not talking about the, if you're a chemist here, you say, well, I thought you just said that you couldn't lose, salt couldn't lose its saltiness. It's sodium chloride. It's a strong bond. That's not what Jesus is talking about. How did they get salt in the old days? They didn't mine it in the same ways necessarily that we do today. You know what they would do in, in Jesus' day? They would go to salt marsh pits, like around the Dead Sea. You know, the Dead Sea in, in modern Israel is, has uh, just an incredible salt content in it, way greater than ordinary salt water. And they would, they would take this salty marsh mud area, and they would basically, as I understand it, just let it sit out. In the sun, in the sun and the elements would leach away the other impurities and you'd get pretty, pretty stable salt, sodium chloride. It would just, everything else would just kind of melt away. But the problem is sometimes in Jesus' day, as I understand it, you would have sometimes impurities that would still be mixed in with the salt. And if those impurities remained and the salt was what leached away, what would you be left with? not salt, you could be left with things that might look like salt, but you taste it and you say, there's not, what happened to the salt? It doesn't taste like salt anymore. So you'd have, be left with an impure compound that actually wasn't salty. This is the idea of what Jesus is saying. It's the same reason in Matthew 5, he says, if the salt has lost its savor, what good is it? It's no good for nothing is to be cast out like mud and trodden under the foot of men. He says, that's not the salt that, I, that you are. You're the salt of the earth. Now notice again what he says here. If the salt have lost its saltness, if it's lost its salty condition, wherewith will ye season it? What is he saying there? Here's the idea. Do you imagine that you've got your salt shaker at home and you want to season something that you're eating and you, you pour a little salt on it and you taste it and you say, this salt needs some salt. Jesus is saying, that doesn't make any sense. I need some salt for my salt. It doesn't make any sense at all. If you have a salt shaker and you put it on and it needs to be salted, you say, well, that salt shaker's no good. How am I going to put salt in what's supposed to be salt? It just needs to be salt. That's the idea. It's not what it's supposed to be. 
And here's the idea is what he's saying the danger for Christians is. He said, my sacrifice to me must be salted with salt. It has to have that kind of preserving and purifying influence in your life. He says, but if you've lost the salt, if you're not having that condition of preservative and purifying and permanence in your own life, you'll have no ability to influence other people. You'll have no ability to be the salt of the earth if the salt has leached out, if my influence on your character, if the nature, if, if, if the influence of the Holy Spirit isn't pervaded in your life, what good is it? Salt is good. But if you're not salty, you're not making an indifference for me in the world. Friends, do you know how practically true this is? Your ability to influence the people around you will be directly connected to how salty a Christian you are. I mean, how much the salt of God's nature has changed you. If you're known in your neighborhood as a kind of standoffish, selfish person, how will you be able to influence your neighborhood for Christ? If you're known in your neighborhood as someone who just kind of keeps to yourself and not very friendly, not able to reach out beyond yourself, how are you going to influence people for the gospel? If you're not known for your love, if you're not known for your purity of life, if you're not known for your selflessness in your workplace, how are you going to make a difference? Here's what Jesus is saying. If you've lost your characteristic of my followers, this saltiness, this preservative, this purifier, then what good are you? How are you going to get salty again? Friends, we need to take that seriously to heart. Salt is good. It is something that God says, do you want to bring you, present your life as an offering? It's going to have salt on it. It's going to have my preservative, purifying influence of my Holy Spirit in your life. Watch the danger, friends, that we become unsalty and we have no ability to influence the people around us. Notice then what he says our duty is. Will you see? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. Have salt in yourselves. What's he saying? Very simply, let my gospel influence you from the inside out. Let me change you. Let me purify you like a disinfected in your life. Let me preserve you from rotting in your inner core. Let me have my influence in you. Have salt in yourselves. Listen to Colossians chapter 4. Paul has the same idea in verse 6 when he says this. Let your speech be always or always with grace, seasoned with salt. Was the idea. In the way you speak to people, let it be influenced by what you believe. In the way you speak to people, let it have that saltiness of a Christian. Let it have, let God's influence be on all your words. Don't curse. Don't demean. Don't insult. Don't go after people. Let your words be kind words. Let them be edifying, building up words. Let them be encouraging words. That's just one example. He could say all of it. Let your entire life be seasoned with salt. Let your workplace be seasoned with salt. Let your school place be seasoned with salt. Let your family relationships be seasoned with salt. Have salt in yourselves. And do you know what he says next? And have peace one with another. 
Have peace one with another. Get along with each other. Pursue peace. We'll talk about that a little bit more tonight. Now, what I love about this, what we've done here, we've looked at the clear language of the Bible. We've looked at the consistency that this has with the rest of Scripture. And I want you to notice that, in my view, this fits perfectly with our context. We had Dan read that broader context this morning because what led Jesus to start teaching on this subject? What led him to that? Do you remember what the disciples were doing? Were they at peace with one another? They were bickering. What were they bickering about? Who would be the greatest? Who's number one? Their pride, their vanity was elevating them. And Jesus says, boys, i got to talk to you about something. You want to know what it is to be great in my kingdom? It's to be last of all and to be servant of all. Friends, the purifying fire of God wants to make you humble. He wants to bring you down in your own eyes and others to be elevated so that you'll serve them and you'll love them. That's what the purifying fire of God does. Do you know what the salt of God's character does? The salt that preserves and that purifies? It's going to make you holy by serving others, by humbling yourself before them. That's going to make you pursue peace with people. You're not going to be elevating yourself. You're not going to be sticking yourself up, arguing about who's number one, but whose needs come first. You're going to be willing to step back and allow yourselves to be last of all, to be servant of all. Do you want to be a salty Christian this morning? Do you want to be a salty Christian this week? Then realize that what Jesus says applies to all of us. Don't try to be first. Be willing to be last of all, to be servant of all. And God willing, you'll know what it is to be at peace with one another. Well, we've done it, friends. Good luck, the commentators say. I think this passage actually makes a lot of sense. Jesus is saying this. You're going to choose which fire you have. Everyone will be salted with fire. Friend, have you chosen the fire of purifying, the fire of God's love, the fire that Jesus came to bring? Have you accepted and trusted him as your savior? Is the sacrifice of your life before God salty? Is it the, it, does it look like that permanent commitment that you've made to him, that preserving and purifying influence that is cleansing you each day and making you more like him? And are you pursuing peace with one another? Are you having salt in each aspect of your individual life. May we see these two pictures of fire and salt and see them at work in our own lives.